Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Harlan Ellison died on June 27, 2018, at the age of 84. Impossible to categorize and sometimes impossible to be around, he was an acclaimed short story writer known for his science fiction and fantasy, a novelist, an editor best known for the classic Dangerous Visions anthologies, a television writer and consultant, a media gadfly, and one of the most steadfast promoters of reading and independent bookstores. On September 15, 1997, my then co-host Richard A. Lupoff and I had a chance to sit down with Harlan Ellison as he was promoting his latest collection of short stories and essays, Slippage. Dick Lupoff first met Harlan in 1960, and their friendship, with its ups and downs, was to last until Harlan's death, two years shy of a half century. This interview reflects that friendship and their relationship, both professionally and personally. Harlan Ellison, you've written many, many short stories. You tend to stay away from the novel form, and I'd like to start by asking you, what is it about the short story or the essay that, that you enjoy more than writing the novel? Or do you? People speak to me about that as if, as, if, as if I have committed some sort of heinous crime by not writing novels. Well, no, I know you, you are not, but that's the feeling I get. And, and then I look at these vast, bloated trilogies of stories that maybe had enough material for a short story, and they've been pumped full of hot air so that they can push them through Delray books, you know, and get, and get people to, to buy the same story over and over again. I... Uh, tend to be a sprint runner. Uh, I have written novels. I've written four full-length books, and I will probably write some more before I get packed away. But for the most part, I like to write stories that, uh, how do I put it, that, 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 that encompass the, the blazing moment, that give you everything that went before and foreshadow everything that will come. And it's that moment of epiphany, that moment of most uh, heightened activity and passion uh, I think that way. That's the way I think. I think in short bursts. I'm a very limited person. Uh, this is my 70th book, and uh, uh, I find that it works well for me. We live in a time where everybody has to write novels to be taken seriously. And yet, uh, Ray Bradbury and myself, and maybe one or two other people, Borges, Borges never wrote a novel, uh, are taken seriously for the shorter works. And people... At some point, you get judged strictly on the basis of the body of work, not what the work should be or what it isn't or what it might be or what, uh, or what uh, savants and pundits think it might ought to be. Dick Lupoff. I noticed in the introduction of Slippage, uh, there's kind of elegiac quality. In fact, you say at one point, this may be my last book. Do you feel that you are now summing up your career or do you feel that you've still got a significant pathway yet to tread? I feel, Dick, that I don't know anymore. When I was younger, I mean, I, I was on the road at age 13 and have always been self-sufficient and, and always just sort of plunged ahead with my life, never really took much of a care. I battered up my body, I raced, and I jumped off buildings and did all kinds of crazy stuff. And I ate, like you, 
nature's most perfect food, the pizza, for 50 years. And then one day, uh, I had uh, what they, what they, what they, it wasn't even a heart attack. They called it a coronary event. I like that, an episode, because apparently the heart is as strong as a Bessemer converter oven. But the, unfortunately, the, all of the arteries leading into it were like the Bay Bridge at rush hour. You just couldn't get across. And I found myself at one point in Cedar sinai a year ago, April, lying in a bed and looking through the doorway of death onto the other side. And, all, and I got scared. I got really scared. I'm, I'm, I'm a hard person to scare. I've, I've let, as, as Silverberg has said, I'm, I'm fearless, meaning not that I'm without fear, just that I'm too stupid to know when to be afraid. And I looked across and I got that much vaunted sense of mortality, which I had been writing about for years in an academic way, you know, thinking how clever I was. And then I really got it. And it scares the crap out of you. And when I wrote that in the introduction about this my, perhaps being my last book, what I was saying, I guess, was that I've been through an earthquake that damn near killed me and caused me an, an, an enormous amount of physical fright. And then I had the heart thing, and I suddenly said, wait a minute, I, uh, I, I am a string with a, with a, with a, with a, with a specific length. Mm-hmm. There, is a, there is a finite end to, to everything. I'm not going to go on forever. I've got to consider that. And there I was in the day before I had the, before they cracked me open and put my heart on this side, and my lungs out on this side, and, and built me the new superhighway uh, in my chest. Uh, I was lying there, and I get a call from a, from a publisher, and uh, he says, uh, geez, we've got to have that essay for uh, the next issue. And I said, I'm lying in the, the, the cardiac intensive care unit. Do you understand? I may, I may die tomorrow. He said, I understand. I said, but do you think that there's any chance that today you might be able to do it? And I, I was so <laughs> appalled and stunned by it, but it was so much, I mean, it's so much de rigueur. I mean, it is exactly the way these people act. And, and in fact, there was an experience just before we went on the air today, not unlike that, right here in your hotel room, wasn't there? Uh, yes, as a matter the of fact. Beauty. Uh, yeah, exactly. They lose all humanity. The publishing deadline becomes the most important thing in the world. And when in fact, it's bullshit. It doesn't matter. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? They're three days late. Okay, the issue comes up. Like on a television show, they said, he, he won't show up. I said, fine. The worst that's going to happen is a half hour of recorded organ music. This will not set back the course of Western <laughs> civilization. But they can't get that. And, and he was so upset about this essay that, in fact, Susan, my wife, brought in my portable typewriter into the, into the cardiac intensive care unit. And with my tuchus hanging out the back of the gown uh, and me dragging my IV feed, the IV bottle, along with me, they rigged up a, a little table for me in front of the window. And I sat there and I wrote a 3,000-word essay about Barclay Shaw. And it was a good piece, too. It was called uh, Tremalchio and West Egg, which was the original title of The Great Gatsby. I was doing that right up to... I mean, I didn't realize I, they were going to crack me open. I thought I was going to have another angioplasty. Mm-hmm. But after that, when I came out on the other side of that, I suddenly realized, no, I don't care anymore if I miss the deadline. I don't give a damn. Uh, it is more important that I spend whatever years I have left uh, in company with my wife, some happiness. You know, we've been married 11 years, and I would like another 11 years of that. I'll tell you the one thing I know for sure, Dick. I've finally begun to learn how to write. Finally. After all these years, I think I'm, I'm, I'm starting to do pretty good work now. Yeah. And I like, I like what I write. I just like the hell out of what I write. And it's a great joy. It's a great pleasure. I mean, I've always enjoyed writing, but it's always been work, too. But I'm not one of these writers that, oh, the horror of writing. If you don't want to write, go become a plumber, schmuck. I just think now that it's, if I, if I last another maybe five, six, maybe ten years, I will really write something worth con- of some consequence. You say that you finally learned how to write. Uh, well, I've enjoyed your work for 30 years. Can you define a little bit more what you mean by I finally learned how to write? I think it was Erwin Shaw who said, a writer does not write one book at a time or one 
play at a time or even one quatrain at a time. What what he's engaged in doing is taking a long journey and he's reporting and saying, this is where I am today, this is what this place looks like today. And a body of work is like a mountain range. It rises to a peak and then it falls to a plain. And, and, it's, and I, I reached a level of professional, the word just fell out of my head, competence. That's, that's the word, yes. I, I reached a level of craft that I think is the minimal level at which any writer should write. I mean, you never fall, if you fall below that, you really ought to be out on a hillside planting trees and serving the common wheel. I reached that level of competence, I guess in maybe the third year, I started writing in 55, by I guess 57 or 58 when I got drafted in the army, by then I had reached the level of competence that, that you must reach, of craft. Thereafter, I worked very, very hard and very, very assiduously to better myself. You gotta understand something. I'm not like a Bob Silverberg who had a terrific college education or, or Dick, you, you were your college graduate. And the, the funny line I use is I'm a self-made man thereby demonstrating the horrors of unskilled labor. Uh, I, I came into this with more passion and verve than skill. I read over the, 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 the early stuff I wrote, and it's very embarrassing. How I was ever able to get published at all, I don't know. But, but people were kind to me, and they bought my stuff. And it had life to it. It had vigor to it, and that carried me a long way. Uh, people like to pretend that I'm a scientific illiterate. Well, I'm not a scientific illiterate. I'm not a Luddite. I did do the research whenever I needed the research, but my, my milieu, the, the kind of thing I wanted to write, was not heavy science. It was not hard science. It was, it was more Borgesian fantasy, more mimetic fiction. But I, I read good writers. Everything I learned, I taught myself, and I taught myself from reading other good writers. It's been a very hard road to hoe, uh, trying to overcome my own infelicities of, 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 of grammar and my own inequities. That isn't even the word I want. It's the word is um, the inadequacies that, 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 I, that I've had. And I finally think after 30 years, uh, I'm getting past some of those. And I now can write, I mean, uh, the story in Slippage, Mephisto and Onyx, it's a killer. That's a killer story. I could not even have begun to write that. Even 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to write it. And now I write those kinds of things, or, or the man who wrote Christopher Columbus's show, the one from the Best American Short Stories. I, I, yeah, I, I just, I'm, I love that story. I just love that. It's my, it's my ultimate atheist tract. Nobody perceives that, but that's what it's about. It's about the fact there ain't no God. You're responsible for your own life. The universe doesn't know you're here. It doesn't give a damn. It's neither malign nor benign. One day it'll, it'll kick the slats out from under you, and the next day it'll make you uh, the king of the universe. Uh, I couldn't have written that stuff. I wasn't smart enough to write that stuff, although I read voraciously and always have. Uh, I'm not one patch as smart as Silverberg. I mean, he just knows every damn thing. And when I needed a piece of science that I didn't couldn't find in my own library, and I've got a quarter of a million books in my library, so I can go find what I want. But when I needed something specific, I'd call Isaac. And, I, and I'd call him in New York and say, Isaac, for God's sake, you know, tell, help me here. And he would say, ah, what you want to know is, and he would give me the specific thing without a whole long rotomatade. I just love the craft. I think it's the hardest meanest job in the world. And when kids come up to me at colleges and they ask me, you know, they come up like Willie Loman. They say, what, you know, what's the secret, Ben? What's the secret? I say, diamonds, Willie, diamonds. I went into the jungle and hewed an empire out of the jungle. I, I say to them, I say to them, go to a trade school and learn to be a plumber. Learn electrical wiring. And they think I'm putting them on. They think I'm hiding something because I don't want the competition. I have no competition. There's no competition. Yeah, I, I got the Harlan Ellison story market cornered. I, I, I don't worry about that. I'm always happy to see another writer make it. Always. There's no jealousy in me at all, unless it's a really bad writer. When, when John Grisham or Judith Krantz gets a bestseller, I, you know, I, it makes me crazy. But, but any other writer who works hard, I think, deserves it. 
and when I tell them that, they think I'm putting them on about, about being a plumber. I say, no, you got to understand something. When, when your toilet overflows, you do not need Dostoevsky coming to your house. A plumber probably serves the, the world better in the long run than a writer does. I mean, we, we sit around and we tell these funny little lies, and maybe if we're lucky, we'll write something that someone will one day, you know, get an epiphany from. But we're not Harriet Beecher Stowe. We're not Lao Tzu. We're not going to write the, the, the study of the Peloponnesian Wars. There are only maybe in the history of the world, maybe, what, a dozen books that have been really pivotal, that have really mattered. All the rest of it is writers stroking their egos and jerking their puds, pretending that they are the ones who, who, are, the, who, are, the, who are the great legend makers. Well, maybe they are, but you never know which ones are going to be and which ones aren't. Uh, Jimmy Stewart, I think, would probably not believe that his most famous movie would be uh, the Christmas thing, uh, Wonderful Life. Wonderful life. Uh, I mean, Jimmy Stewart had made so many better movies than that, uh, and yet it's a Wonderful Life is the one that emerges. Conan Doyle, he hated Sherlock Holmes, hated him. He wanted, he killed him for Christ's sake. And yet, when somebody says to me, "What should they read to be a good writer?" or I say, "All you need to read to be a good writer or to live a, pr a productive life is the Sherlock Holmes canon." Read those, and they look at me, and they scratch their head. Well, wouldn't the Bible? And nah, screw the Bible. Get that thing out of the way. You know, it's full of you know bad advice. The Sherlock Holmes stories deal with deductive logic. And if you learn the technique of deductive logic, your eyes will be open. You will walk through your life instead of stumbling through it like somebody smacked in the head with a ball-peen hammer. Am I bad? Yeah, I'm rambling out. I, I... If you could visit the 12-year-old Harlan Ellison, what would you tell him? Or would you keep your mouth shut? Oh, well, listen, kiddo. My wife, Susan, says... I don't have to go visit the 12-year-old. I'm him. Do you, know, do, you know, do you know where I just came from? We were driving here to the hotel to have this interview with you, and we pass a store called Wings America. And I start screaming, stop the car, stop the car, stop the car. So the lady who, the PR lady who was driving us, uh, it was my chaperone, she, she says, what, what, what? She, I said, pull over. She pulls over. I jump out of the car, and I go running into Wings America, where I bought the most sensational Pacific Clipper lamp that you've ever seen in your life plus uh, and they're and they're playing and they're playing music and it's and it's jimmy durante singing i'll see you in my dreams and i'm singing along with them that i am the 12 year old unfortunately that's the bad that's the upside and the downside i never ever matured i never ever became an adult you're an adult, Richard. You've always been. I, ever since I've known you, you've been a grown-up person. Well, less than you. Yeah, you're right. Less than you. But he, but he pretends. He's, he's much better than I am at pretending. Well, and I don't. I can't pretend at all. I'm. I still babble. Shall like, I leave the room so you fellows can? No, 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 no. We need a father figure. <laughs> My big thing this week is getting all five of the Superman figures that they're giving away at Burger King. Before I left at home, uh, I got one of the missing issues of Black Hawk. For my mm -hmm. collection that I had not got, Reed Crandall. It, and it was a Reed, it was a Reed Crandall cover too. It was sure. gorgeous. Yeah, my definition of success has always been a very simple one. It, if you can achieve in adult terms that which you lusted for as a child, you're a success. If you want to be a cowboy and you wind up owning I don't know a cattle ranch, you're a success. If you like playing doctor and you wind up being a brain surgeon, you're a success. All my life, I, all I wanted to be was free to play with my toys and have comic books and have a house full of secret passages. And, and that's what I've got. And, and, and all the rest of people talking to me about fame and celebrity, that's, that's caca. That doesn't pay, I don't pay any attention to that. I'm, I mean, you've known me th more than 30 years, Richard. Am I any different now than I was 30 years ago? Your hair is a different color. <laughs> yes, it's white. But, but there's as much of it as, as before. Well, you know, after the earthquake and after the heart attack, uh, the heart thing, my hair started to fall out. Really? Yeah, got real thin, and then but then it grew back. I just got—I guess I'm just lucky. I've got good genes for hair. 
Uh, I change the subject. You've had a long-running love-hate relationship with Hollywood. Whatever you might want to say about that, free form, or if not, I'll ask you more specific questions. Well, that pretty much sums it up. I guess the, the most notable thing, it's, it's, it's quoted in something like the Britannica or something. My, 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 my definition of working in Hollywood is like putting in time in the Egyptian House of the Dead. Uh, it is a very difficult business because, as Pauline Kael said, it's an art form being run by businessmen. Uh, writers are treated like, not even chattel, writers are treated like, like dirt. Directors lie to everyone and say, oh, well, the script, it's just a blueprint, and then, you know, I have the vision. Well, first of all, pinhead, you're not supposed to have a vision, you're supposed to have a viewpoint. And don't talk to me and don't use the, 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 the trope of a blueprint. You show me one construction guy who's got a blueprint done by an architect who decides that he's suddenly going to change it and put the windows over here and take the top floor off and do all that. A blueprint is, is, a, is for what you want to see on the screen, and they're supposed to do it that way. But they have managed to get the top money by conning people into believing that directors really are the ones who have the vision. And it is a, a duplicitous and mean-spirited way of doing business that keeps writers uh, very much in a secondary sharecropper kind of position. I work in the medium when I think I can do something that will not make me want to go and take an Uzi and kill everyone in the studio. And sometimes it works and most times it doesn't work. And that's why I don't work that much in television anymore. I work on Babylon 5 because it is an absolute joy. Joe Straczynski is one of the smartest, cleverest writers who has ever come down the pike. And what he's doing in the genre has never been done before. That show transcends by such a such an in, inordinate degree, everything else that's ever been done in the space genre, that uh, it makes you realize how tacky and how tawdry and how limited all the other shows have been, despite their enormous popularity and the, the number of sycophants they have. What Joe has literally done, and I, as you can tell, I'm, I am quite in awe of Joe Straczynski. I think he's one of the best writers that the field of science fiction has ever produced. He was writing the kind of stuff that if that if Doc Smith were writing, he would be writing today. He's done a Doc Smith War and Peace in Space is what he's done. What is your relationship to the show itself? Well, I'm called the conceptual consultant uh, because the term uh, creative consultant, which was the title I had on Twilight Zone back in 85, has been changed or bastardized or taken over through the years to become a story editor's job, which means rewriting. And since I don't rewrite other people, and of course Joe writes most all of the scripts, he doesn't need any rewriting, we were asked by the Guild to come up with a new title. So I said, well, how about Big Macher? And they said, well, no, they didn't think that was too good. I said, well, how about Real Important Guy? They didn't like that. Either. So we, we cobbled up conceptual consultant, which is really gibberish. What it means is I go where I need to go on a daily basis. I do what job needs to be done, and I'm always thinking. People say, well, what do you do? Give me a for instance. Okay, here's a for instance. I remembered when I was in the Army that the two most powerful people on the base were not the general who ran the damn base or even the company commander. One of them was the postmaster who got the mail in, and the second one was the cook and the, uh, the top sergeant who ran the, the mess hall. You mess with him, you don't get any food. You mess with the other guy, you don't get any mail. So I said to Joe, I said, you know, if you're on a space station way the hell out and, you know, back of the beyond, the most important person on that place is going to be the guy who runs the post office. Because if you're waiting for a shipment of something to come in and you get on his wrong side, you are screwed. And I said, not to mention that you're going to be lonely, you're going to be unhappy, all the food's got to come through him, all of the, uh, everything that comes on board goes through him like a quartermaster. So I said, no one has ever done that. In none of those, those shows done by the other people have you ever seen, you know, a post office. 
So Joe wrote a show in which there was a there was a post office show, and that was from something I had given him. And I do that. I'll come up with character. One day Joe said, uh, "Give me twenty character things for for every different character on the show." And one of the guys I had, uh, he's talking to uh, Jerry Doyle, the security chief, and it was uh, Zach, who's his uh, his second in command. And he's and he's kind of shrugging his shoulders, he's pulling at his collar, and he's, and 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 finally Jerry uh, Garibaldi says, "What what is with you? What is what is this twitchy? What are you an epileptic? What is it with you?" He says, "Ah, he's like he says I'm." My skin is very sensitive. This uniform scratches me, and I can't find a good tailor on B5 who can do a decent lining. And I just, and I can't. And he said, well, go find one. Get away from me. You're making me crazy. That didn't have anything to do with anything. It didn't go anywhere. It was just a character thing. The guy had sensitive skin. Um, uh, uh, there was a, another piece I wrote where, where one of the women complained about the size of her breasts, which is what something women always do. Women always complain about the side. They're too large, they're too small, the left one's bigger than the right one. And, and, and so I, uh, I put that in and that was used. Uh, Joe is very quick to pick up these things and, uh, and he doesn't have to think about them because I do. Harlan Ellison, is there anything that you regret not doing or any work you regret not writing? Well, I do wish the last dangerous visions were done. Oh God! That was that was a question. That was another question I had for you. It's I, I, right there. It's. I mean, it's still there. I'm still working on it. I'm still doing it. It'll it'll, it'll get done. Uh, it has been nothing but uh, but a but a but a millstone and surus for me. I'm dancing as fast as I can. I try to. get It's an enormous job. I haven't given up on it. Although there are a number of mean spirited people who have uh, who use it constantly to flame me. And this is the astonishing thing. Slippage is my seventieth book. And when I and I did a signing yesterday, five people said, "So where is and they, you know the novel based on a boy and his dog? Where is and I and I say, Jesus, Christ, can't you enjoy this one? I mean, I'm I'm working, I'm dancing as fast as I can. It's not like I'm loafing for God's sakes. It's not like I'm Walter Miller wrote one book and then went off to live in Recluseville. I'm working. Well, what happened to to Last Dan Dangerous Visions? Why didn't it come out like 25 years ago? Two things happened that, that I never talk about. One, one of them was that in England, we sold Dangerous Visions and again Dangerous Visions to a house called Millington, which was the editor there at the time was a man who's now made a name for himself as a writer, Tom Tessier. They screwed it up badly. They stiffed us for money. They cheated the writers. I pulled the book back and I wouldn't let it go to press. I was afraid to put it in print because if I put it in print, they would pick it up and just print it in England. So I stalled until they went out of business. Well, by that time, other things had happened. I started slowing down. I've had chronic fatigue syndrome for more than 25 years. I had no idea I had it. Uh, I just started to slow down and the job got bigger and bigger and bigger and the mountain got higher and higher and higher to climb. And you know, there's two kinds of people who've been involved in it. The writers, for the most part, have been sensational. I think over the 25 years, the 20, 25 years that, I've, that we've been waiting to get this book done, maybe a dozen people have pulled out. Some of them did it rancorously. Some of them did it pleasantly. I never stopped anybody. I always said, go, if you want to take it, that's fine. Writers like Clifford Simak, he said, I'm willing to wait. He said, however long it takes. He was the sweetest man in the world. Uh, I just got a letter from, uh, from uh, John Varley the other day. He says, look, I'm going to write a novel based on the story that uh, I did for you 20 years ago. I love that idea, and I'm gonna, I, I now want to do a novel. Pretty much good things have come to everybody who, who gave me stories. One way or another, I mean, I bought a lot of people's first stories. They're now famous. In fact, a lot of people have gotten famous and died. That happens. I, I, I can only go as far as I can. My intentions were good. They remain good. I give a promise. I try to keep a promise. Sometimes circumstances get in the way, and you, and, you, and you don't like to alibi, and I don't like to alibi, and I don't like to cover up. But there have been people who have used it. They don't like me personally, so they use this as some sort of a great crime that I've committed, that I bought these stories and paid everybody three times for them. I am $75,000 out of pocket 
on The Last Dangerous Visions. I've paid back every publisher and every single writer has been paid at least three times for the story. Some of them very, very large amounts of money. The people who are in Dangerous Visions and again Dangerous Visions have made more money off those books than they have off any other anthology they've ever been in. The books have been constantly in print all these years. I'm always sending out checks. I usually wait till the checks get big enough. We just got $50,000 from Mondadori. They uh, went to press without having a contract. And so instead of getting the $3,000 they were going to pay me, they paid me $50,000. Now I'm going to divide that up among all the people in Dangerous Visions. They're going to get huge checks. I lie. I think it was $35,000. I'm sorry. I asked fifty. dollars They settled for $35,000. But that's the kind of editor I am. When I do an anthology, as opposed to many other people who do anthologies, I take the act of being an editor as an act of caretakership. I push the books, I promote the books, I talk about the books, I, I, I hustle for the books. Uh, the, the, the store Dangerous Visions, which we have 2% of their profits. Of course, there never have been any profits, but when the profits come in, that's divided among the writers. I have taken the least amount of money out of the book. I make sure that my writers, and they get every copy of every edition. I mean, Dick, you're in again Dangerous Visions. How many editions do you have? I don't know. But many. I won't sign a contract unless it guarantees that my people will get their books. Other people do anthologies. They don't give a damn. They just say, well, maybe we'll get you. We'll do our best efforts. You know, your mama best efforts. I'm doing the best I can with The Last Dangerous Visions. I I have the sure sense that before, before they raise a rose garden over me, that I will get it done. Is there really a collaboration between Lee Brackett and uh, Edmund oh, Hamilton? Lee Brackett and Ed Hamilton did for me the only collaboration they ever did. It's called Stark and the Star Kings. A few people have pirated stories from me. Uh, the, uh, the people in Nesfa the Northeastern Science Fiction Association, uh, managed by uh, an absolute fluke to get a hold of the unpublished Cordwainer Smith story that I had. But the interesting thing that they don't know is this, and I will reveal this to your audience for the first time. Paul Leinbarger, who, or Leinbarger, who was Cordwainer Smith, did not, in fact, write most of his stories. They were written by his wife, Genevieve. Genevieve Leinbarger was, in fact, the true Cordwainer Smith. And when she sent me the story... Uh, uh, himself in Anacron, which is the story I bought. It was the last, it was the only unpublished Cordwainer Smith story, and I liked it. I said, but it's not quite good enough. And she said, no, it isn't. Let me rewrite it. And she rewrote it, and it still needed work. And Genevieve Leinbarger, who was very ill at the time, said, Harlan, I trust you. You rewrite it. And so the story that Nesva has published is one-third mine, but they don't know it. <laughs> and now they do. Dick Lupoff. For 100 years, people have been saying the theater is dying, but the theater is still alive. And for 50 years, people have been saying the printed word is dying, but it's still alive. You think it's going to stay alive? It'll always stay alive in some form, but I think it is in serious shape. It is seriously ill. We have become a nation, and we're spreading our pollution everywhere and intellectually, that is constantly, is, is overcome with being entertained. And the, the definition of entertainment grows narrower and narrower. Where reading Edgar Allan Poe used to be entertainment, where seeing Shakespeare used to be entertainment, where reading epic poetry used to be uh, entertainment, now entertainment is only a film with Pauly Shore in it. It is bad trilogies. It is uh, slovenly writing. It is the cheapest, lowest possible common denominator. That's entertainment, and that's the excuse. Well, we want to entertain. And then they lie. They lie by saying, well, we're only giving our audience what they want, which is patently ridiculous, because if they have never gotten it before, how do they know they want it? An audience is not telepathic. An audience gets what you give them, and an audience will rise to whatever level you wish them to rise to, and they will sink and be degraded to whatever level you permit them to be. And we are now dealing with 50 years, of, well, at least 40 years, of, of the steady bastardization of the audience. 
where people can no longer read Mario Vargas Llosa. They can no longer read uh, Thomas Pynchon. Uh, they can read uh, Danielle Steele. They can read Judith Krantz. They can read John Grisham. You know, when I was on Politically Incorrect, I said, I mean, I said, Jesse Helms sucks runny eggs. I said, you know, the president needs a lobotomy. I said, all of the, nobody, nobody, the minute I said John Grisham can't write his way out of a pay toilet, the audience wanted to light Bernie Faggots and, and chase me down the street. <laughs> By the way, you're not allowed to say Burning Faggots anymore because someone will think you're going to set fire to a gay guy. Uh, Firebrands. They, they were, they were, they were going <laughs> to, that's another thing. Language gets polluted. And I, I don't mind the, the, the you know, the re, the recasting of language, but language is now held in such disregard that when I use the word catafalque on politically incorrect, Bill Maher was one of the great thinkers of our time, as we all know. Bill Maher said, ooh, what kind of a word is that? And he, and he belittled it. And, I, and when we got off stage, I said, don't ever, ever do that to me. I said, if you ever want me back on this show, so you can make fun of me, don't you ever make fun of the fact that I'm using correct grammar. And he hasn't since then. Uh, I think he, he saw I was not clowning. Yeah, I think literature is in serious trouble. I think the written word is in serious trouble because there are so many other avenues of attention for people who ordinarily would have read a book. Not just movies, not just television, which is the most monstrous handmaiden of ignorance and stupidity the world has ever known. Uh, but there's the internet, this 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 vast web back fence for all of the stupid yentas who have nothing better to do but spend all night long putting crap up on the line. Uh, there's there's CD-ROMs, there's this, there's that, there's the other thing. There weren't that many, in the exact sense of the word, viable viable alternatives for your life to get entertainment from previously. Now there are. And reading takes some effort. Reading takes effort. You got first of all, you got to be able to read, and a lot of people can't even read. There's a there's an entire vast number of people in this country who simply cannot read. They would like to read, but they can't read. This means that the popular entertainments. What was it John Gardner said before he died? He said, "There's nothing wrong with pop art or low art, but as long as there is high art, because high art makes the world safe." for low art. But when you've got nothing but the cheap arts, it's like bad money driving out good. I look around me today. I mean, I'm okay. I'm set. I got no complaints. I, I make a very good living. Uh, but I, I have to work my ass off at it. I work very hard to, to stay in the business. And that's the great secret of writing, as, as you know, Richard. When, 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 when kids say, what's the secret? I say, well, the secret is not becoming a writer. I said, anybody could become a writer. I mean, when you, when you read the crap that, that Judith Krantz writes, you know that things that live in, a, in, in Petri dishes can become writers. So the trick is to stay a writer. Day after month, after story, after year, after novel, to keep in there. And uh, after a while, you find your audience vanishing and diminishing. And I very consciously kept courant and kept in the public eye like a cinder. Susan and I have over $50,000 loaned out to, to, to other writers. Writers you know very well, Dick. Uh, oh, oh, last week I got a call from a writer. He's got 40, 45 books uh, written. I mean, pivotal books in the field. And he calls me and he says, can I mooch $500? He says, I've got, uh, I can't make the rent on this dinky little one-room office I got, you know, downtown. I'm not even going to tell you what city it was. Uh, he says, I, you know, I got a wife and three kids at home and I can't write. I simply can't write. I need to uh, 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 have the office. Can I borrow $500? We said, sure. So we sent him $500. I'll never see it. I'll never get it back. I, I don't care. He's a friend. He's a good writer, and he deserves to, uh, to, 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 to be supported. It's the least I can do. Writers are falling by the wayside left and right. It is impossible to make a living these days. When people involved in the O.J. Simpson fiasco are getting six, seven figures for crap, 
you find that everybody else is forced into the mid-list. I mean, writers who were enormously important writers, I mean, we're talking Joyce Carol Oates and William Kotzwinkle, and, and uh, 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 they're mid-list writers now. I interviewed Joseph Cannon, who wrote a book called Los Alamos. He's a former executive at Houghton Mifflin. And when I spoke with him, I asked him about the $100,000, $200,000 advances to first novelists for garbage. And he said, you have to understand, and these midlist writers have to understand, that that money did not come from them. Is he full of, full of it? Of course he's full. There's only a finite pool of money in any publishing company. What the hell does he think he's coming from? Manna from heaven? Of course it comes from somewhere. When Judith Krantz was given the paperback advance by Bantam, was the largest paperback advance in the history of the American publishing industry. It was some staggering, enormous sum of money for, it wasn't even Princess Daisy, I think it was Mistral's Daughter or one of those really dreadful things. It meant that Bantam could not buy 40 or 50 or 60 or 100 lesser books by less important, in, in, in quotes, less important writers. Not only that, but if somebody is going to spend $2 million five for one book, do you think that they're going to spend their advertising budget for my book or Dick's book? No, they're going to spend it on that piece of garbage because that's where they got all their eggs in that basket. Anybody who tells you differently is merely jerking your chain and blowing smoke up your skirt. Well, that's what I said to him. As I said, don't you realize $100,000 for one book can buy 10 books for $10,000, period. He said it doesn't work that way, and I'm thinking to myself, this is a load of garbage. Yeah. And when I edited the tape, that's exactly... I kept sitting, walking through, pacing mm -hmm. my little one-foot-wide studio going, this is crap. Yeah, it is crap. It's a, it's a lie. It's an outrageous lie. He's involved in that horrendous cycle of publishing crap and hoping that they're going to hit the big one. And every year, this stuff fails, and it drags them down more and more and more. If it worked, if it worked, we wouldn't have one-third the publishing companies that we had only 20 years ago, and they wouldn't all be in the hands of Sony and, and, and other giant corporations. There would be room for independent publishers, and these, these, these giant bookstores are the, the other thing that's killing the hell out of it. I won't sign in them. I will not sign in a Barnes & Noble or a B. Dalton. I just won't do it. I'm like Stephen King. He very, very, very rarely will sign in a, in, a, in, a, in a chain bookstore. I sign in independent bookstores. I don't care where it is. I don't care if I draw one-third the audience. I will do my little bit, however little bit it may be, to keep the independent bookseller alive because that's where the future of literature in this country lies. Not in these damn big stores that'll give you a latte. For whom do you write? Well, I listen. My answer is the same as your answer. I write for I write for the most brilliant, witty, intelligent, incisive, intuitive audience that ever was. I write for me. I write for myself. I mean, no, who, what, any writer who says he writes for his audience is so full of wild blueberry muffins that he ought to be taking a staked out and let the ants, you know, eat his, eat his eyes out. If you start trying to write for an arbitrary audience, all you'll be doing is rewriting the same crap you wrote before to satisfy them because the audience is the great enemy. Now, this makes nothing but trouble for me. I, I gave an interview in which I said a writer should not only ignore the audience, he should despise the audience, which was too, I went one step too far. I, I, I don't despise my readers. I love my readers individually. As a gestalt, they're a monster. Because given their druthers, they will have you writing the same story over and over and over again. If I didn't consciously keep an animosity level high with my audience, I would still be writing Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man 30 years later. 
Isaac Asimov wound up doing that. James H. Schmitz ruined him as a writer because the approbation for his stories made him rewrite that same story over and over and over again. I think you have to keep your audience pissed off and at arm's length. I don't like them praising me. I don't like them pummeling me. I try not to pay attention to the reviews, although I know how important they are. But the audience is the enemy. They're your salvation and your savior. It's a real terrible dichotomous situation. They're the ones who keep you alive and keep buying us up. But when someone comes up to me at a signing like they did yesterday and, and, they, and, they, and they say, uh, they, they said something, they wanted me to sign things I didn't want to sign. And I said, no, I choose not to sign those. And they said, well, I was good enough to buy your book and I, and I go ballistic on the spot. I said, yeah, you bought the book. And that's what you got for your money. You bought a book. You didn't buy my smile. You didn't buy my autograph. You didn't buy me doing your shoes for you. You didn't buy anything. If I give you anything, it's out of the kindness of my heart, my largesse, because I want to be a good guy. I said, when you buy a book, that's what you're entitled to. And audiences can't understand. They say, an audience, a reader will say, I made you what you are today. No, pinhead. You and 8 million others made me what I am today, not to mention that I've spent 40 damn years writing. I made me who I am today. If I do the job right, you buy the stuff. If I mess up once, are you going to be loyal? I think not. You're going to be over there reading somebody else. You are as fickle as a three-day lover. Don't jerk my chin. Oh, I'm getting angry. I always get angry. <laughs> I shouldn't get angry. The last. <laughs> it's only an interview. It's only an interview. The last angry young man. I'm 63 years old. You'd think I would have... I go to bed angry every night. I get up angry every morning. You would think that I would have learned by this time. And people say, well, why do you get so upset? And I say, oh, you're right. I never thought of that. What an epiphany. I never thought of that. Why don't I just not get upset? Harlan Ellison continued to live for another two decades. In 2006, he was named a Grandmaster from the Science Fiction Writers of America and won a Nebula Award in 2011 for a short story, How Interesting a Tiny Man. From what I can gather, his most recent collection of new material was published in 2015 and was called Can and Cantankerist. There's a film about his life, Dreams with Sharp Teeth, released in 2007. His best stories are collected in a recent anthology, Top of the Volcano. The Last Dangerous Visions has still never been published. And you can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>